to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com do you want to allow for more pleasure in your sex life join me and reba the diva aka reba corinne thomas of sexpert consultants on july 9th at 11 a.m pacific standard time this two-hour collaborative workshop will cover how your nervous system affects your pleasure potential as well as how to find the right balance of excitement and relaxation this class will also help you to learn more about your erotic style as well as lead you through some guided practices to help you come back to your body before during and after intimate moments check out more info and buy your tickets at sexpert consultants.com slash tickets again s-e-x-p-e-r-t consultants.com slash tickets and join me on july 9th thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm excited to welcome back Kate Lurie. She is an LMFT, a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in non-monogamous folks, kink, LGBTQ, sex worker communities. And she is the author of Open Deeply, which is now out, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. In addition to her master's in marriage and family therapy, she also has an MBA and is a registered art therapist. She's also an EDSE certified sex educator and an EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model for the treatment of trauma. She's been practicing in psychotherapy since 2003 in Encino, and she co-hosts her own sex positive podcast, Open Deeply, with the amazing Sunny Megatron, who is also part of the Pleasure Podcast community and has been featured in BuzzFeed videos, has been a guest on Playboy Radio, lots of podcasts, including this one. And she has written for things like Good Vibrations, and Hollywood Magazine and is a frequent public speaker. So Kate was on the podcast before. If you haven't listened yet, go to episode 137, Non-Monogamy and Attachment, as we will be starting a little bit where we left off in that episode and building on those topics. Welcome back, Kate. Thank you so much for having me back on. Yeah, this is really part two. Yeah, 137 is kind of part one, and now we're doing part two. So thank you for having me on again. Firstly, congratulations. Now, last time you were on, we were talking about the book and what it was going to be about, and now it is out and topping the charts. So how do folks seem to be responding to the book? I, you know, I at, at, at first I was just shocked when I saw that it was number, sometimes like one, two, and three and new releases within human sexual studies, or sometimes number one in two different categories. I was just blown away and, and I still continue to be blown away. And um, as far as how people are reacting, as far as what they come back to me about, they, they're, um, a lot of people are saying that they are loving it. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them seem to pair it with polysecure. They're, they'll say, Polysecure and the and and open deeply are the two best books that are out right now, uh, current books that are out right now within uh, non-monogamy land. So, um, which you know is great company. It's great company to be with with that book and um, and a lot of people that are have been non-monogamous for a couple of decades are coming back to me going. Oh my God, if I had had that book 
20 years ago when I started my non-monogamy journey, I would have avoided so much pain and, and, and you're just checking all the boxes and, and addressing so many things that other books have not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good one for people who are just starting out, but also people who have been in non-monogamy for so long. Like, I don't know how you feel about that, but I think it's across the board, like a good reset or a start for anyone interested in, in opening up. Yeah, are already, are already very much established in openness. Yeah, I mean, when you get when you get to the beginning of the book, part one, it will feel like I'm talking to the new person, and part one is just three chapters, and then part two, part two is the whole rest of the book, which is way way bigger. But um, once you get into part two, um, and we're talking about attachment injuries and and better ways to communicate. I mean, honestly, I've seen couples that have been together for twenty years. And they still are just basically acting like two lawyers trying to win in an argument. Mm. And so that, that's just one example. But there's a, me- a, there's a lot of stuff all through the book uh, that would help a couple that's been, or, you know, when I say couple, that's because that's what comes into my office. Um, whether you have a triad, triad or a quad or a poly family, what comes into my office is the individual or the couple. So I have a tendency to talk with that language. Um, but even if it's two people coming in that have been together forever, a lot of the things in in um, my book would apply to them too. Yeah. Okay. So kind of like jumping off a little bit where we left off, I think one thing I would love to cover with you today is about why compassion is so important uh, in non-monogamy. So like, how do you, how do you kind of define compassion and why is that super key in being in a non-monogamous relationship, or I would, I would argue any relationship. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm monogamous, like these tools I think are wonderful for all types of relationships, to be honest. And I wish more monogamous people would take some of the tips and tools that are taught to non-monogamous people. Yes, uh, that's true. I mean, there's so many tips within non-monogamy and also BDSM, like self uh, aftercare, things like that, that the masses could profit profit from. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as uh, compassion goes, so the, the book talks about, it talks through a compassion lens all the way through, and there's a chapter related to self-compassion, and then there's a chapter related to compassion for your partner. When you think about that word, I think in general, people use it almost as interchangeable with the word love. But if you were to uh, do a Google search, you would see all these articles that differentiate empathy from compassion. You know, empathy is more like, I feel what you feel. I can I can empathize. I can feel your pain, right? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas compassion has an extra piece. It, it's often I, I feel your pain, and also I can see there's there's an issue, and I'm going to do something to make it better. You know, it, there's an action oriented aspect to compassion. It's not just in your in your head. Although in the book, I think I use both. I use the word compassion to be interchangeable with love sometimes. And sometimes I'm using it in that full definition that it's more, you know, compassion in action, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, as I speak on it through the book, um, in terms of why that's so important in relationships that are non-monogamous, um, a lot of time there's, there's many reasons. So I'm just going to pick one, you know, uh, a lot of times in non-monogamy, people get too up in their head and they're disconnected from their body and their emotions. And the thing is, it's like when we're logical, um, 
that that serves us in some ways, but it generally doesn't serve us in relationships. And a lot of times we get disconnected from when we get disconnected from our emotions and our body, it's harder for us to be compassionate because we are usually pushing down our body sensations and emotions. You know, to me, the you know, and and so when we do that, we may say yes when it's not a true yes. And within non-monogamy, let's face it, a lot of times, not always, there's sexual things involved. And so if you're saying yes to something that's not a true yes, then you might be consenting to something and it's not really a true consent. Yeah. Or, or I see a lot of couples who maybe one is not quite as into certain parts of non-monogamy or even maybe opening up at all, but they are worried about losing their partner. So they say yes to things but really they don't feel comfortable with it. Ex- yes, exactly. And and that can, you know, if you are coming from a logical, I mean, I'll admit it, in my past relationship, my 13-year relationship, um, I would categorize myself now as a recovering overgiver. And part of the reason that I was an overgiver was because I was very much in my head. And I think part of it was internalized misogyny because let's face it, one of the typical things about misogyny is man, logical, good woman, emotional, bad. And I think I had, you know, a little bit of that internalized stuff. And so I hyper, you know, I hyper valued logic. And so it wasn't until I took the trauma resiliency model training with, with try the trauma resource Institute that I really started tracking my body and started to realize that I was pushing things down emotionally and somatically before it ever even reached consciousness. Yeah. You know? So I wonder though, with that, like, whose responsibility is it, right? Because like, I don't want to have to be like the minor of, uh, when I say minor, like digging, you know, digging with my partner of like, are you really okay with this? And and wanting to just trust if they're okay with something. How do we kind of navigate that like murky gray area when we don't know if someone's really okay with it? Maybe we get the feeling it's not, but they're not advocating for themselves. Yeah, I think this is one reason it's so important to have, partners in non-monogamy that um, are assertive and are grounded enough to be able to speak their truth. Um, yeah, if you have a partner where you really feel like they're just going along with it, you have to really tread lightly with that because, you know, how are you going to feel about yourself? Like, say, like say you have this relationship and down the road you find out that they've always been saying yes when their yes is not a true yes. How yeah. are you going to feel about yourself that you let that go on? You know, like you sensed it, you kind of knew it. Yeah. And, but you didn't do anything about it as much, whether it means. Yeah. It sort of feels like non, non-consensual. Like it gives me like that icky feeling of like, I knew someone wasn't really into it, but I just kept pushing because I wanted something. It gets really tricky. So, you know, before I, I want to address what you just said. But, you know, sometimes we have to either try and bring it out of them, you know, in a kind way. And if your partner continues to not be able to have a voice, you know, is this a partner you want to, st- you know, there, there's a certain amount of, again, compassion for someone's journey. And mm-hmm. I've seen people where they have a hard time having a voice, but then they, they get a voice and they heal and they work on themselves. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of patience that you need to have. But if somebody is not doing the work, then do you really want to be in that relationship with someone where you might end up with a lot of injuries? Cause you've uh, later on, you feel like, they've consent, you know, they've done all these things that were not a true consent. And now you feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
you know, so, so that's an issue. But on the flip side, um, you know, if there's anything that is a love language in non-monogamy, for most of us, our love language would be a sixth love language uh, beyond the fi- famous five, which would be something like carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure. Oh, yeah. There's, there's so many more love languages than five, that's yes. for sure. Yes, yes, yes. And so, if there's anything that pisses us, pisses us off is feeling controlled. And so, sometimes when someone is not moving along fast enough, or if they're getting triggered, et cetera, or so on, we might step into a place of not having any compassion and just being like, you are controlling me and that is Mm. not okay. Um, That gets tricky, right? Because you can't own a human. We do deserve to have our freedom and agency. But I do feel like if you have two partners that have some emotional intelligence, you can find that that place where you have freedom, but you're also being kind to each other and having compassion for each other related to the things that are hard. Mm, yeah. And, and kind of coming back to what you were saying about the compassion and action, I wonder, I'm like sensing within myself this struggle between like, how do I be compassionate with action while also being true to like what I want? Right. So like, let's say there's something you are wanting in in a relationship and non-monogamy and maybe the compassion with action response, if you're seeing that it's making your partner feel something uncomfortable might be like, let me take care of your feelings and not do this thing because I don't want you to feel bad. But then that feels like it's you're taking on their feelings. So like, what is this nuance maybe between compassion versus taking on and fixing your partner's discomfort? You know, I I think that it depends from couple to couple, but I will say the more aligned you are, you know, like Reed Mahalko used to say, date your species. And when he said that, he wasn't just talking about date another non-monogamous person. (laughs) Date another human. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's like saying, no, date someone who's very aligned with you, especially within non-monogamy. So because I, I've, I've seen where maybe one person is more of a swing lifestyle person and another person is hardcore poly and they are constantly in pain with one another because the distance is too, too great, you mm-hmm. know, between their two needs. Now, sometimes people can work it out, but not always. I mean, we both see mm-hmm. it in our practice where sometimes people come uh, come around. Yeah. But I, do you I, ever, do you ever just say to your clients, like, you're not aligned, you should probably find someone who is? <laughs> I, well, I, Mm. See, it's hard because people do sometimes come around, but I will say something to the effect of if uh, the distance between your needs and your needs is kind of the difference between Sherman Oaks and Encino, uh, which is, you know, two cities that are very close to each other. Yeah, but it depends on when you leave during LA traffic, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This is true, But, but you'll probably be able to see each other trying You'll mm-hmm. and therefore have appreciation that the other person's trying, and you'll probably be able to find that Venn diagram place in the middle that makes you both content enough. But the yeah. difference between your needs is more like the difference between Sherman Oaks and New Zealand. Both of you could be <laughs> trying, but you can't see each other trying. You don't even rec- You don't even feel it, and so you can be frustrated. Yeah. You know. So. So that's a big thing. I mean, but I have yeah. seen people. I. Th- I think for the people that are very far apart um, within non-monogamy, especially if they're new, sometimes they just really need to cool their jets because sometimes one person is going too fast and it's too much and the other person is getting dysregulated in their body. 
And so both of them think, well, you just can't do this. You're not non-monogamous when really the person is dysregulated in their body. Mm. So if you just slow down and, and learn some grounding skills and really have patience for the person within reason. Yeah. Um, and, and just start out by going to a lecture about non-monogamy and then getting some wine and talking about it, doing mm-hmm. it or going to a sex positive Los Angeles event that again is more rated G and talking about it, like just really going slow. Yeah. And, and people get to, and, and through that journey, things get normalized and then it's no longer the unknown. Yeah. And then some, and then people meet the community and are, they're like, oh, these people aren't scary. They're actually like super warm people. Then all of a sudden the person's more regulated in their body and they start to step forward. Mm. I, th- I mean, I think regulation was probably required for both or however many people are involved, right? For the person who's maybe wanting to go slower to regulate, but also for the person who wants to just like chomp at the bit and go of like, yeah. how, what do I do with myself when I'm wanting to move quickly and my partner is the slower hiker of the group. Right, right. Well, I think, it, so we could divide that person into a yeah. whole bunch of, di- let's just divide them into two camps. Yeah. The person that wants to go fast, but is a kind person. And then the person that wants to go fast, that has a lot of narcissism, self-entitlement mm, and lacking yeah. in compassion. Let's, let's, let's do those two camps. Yes, please. <laughs> I have met and dated both, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I think when you are the one that wants to go faster um, and your partner can't, maybe because they're getting triggered or whatever, again, if you, I, I would encourage people to get some kind of help, whether it's, you know, uh, not, okay, I'm going to promote my book. My book will help you guide. Yeah. <laughs> will guide you through some of this stuff. It will be helpful. It's it's the cheapest route. Um, whether you go to a therapist for guidance, that can help. Something that and and again, if you're wanting to go faster, this is the thing. Sometimes just going a little bit slow in the beginning, then you can ramp up way faster towards you know as you proceed because your partner is like okay. They see me, they're empathizing, they're validating me, they're letting me get to know the community. Now I feel like they have my back. So now from this safe place, I can go faster. And this is not necessarily a conscious thought, but this is what mm-hmm. unconsciously happens a lot. At the end of the day, well, a lot of their, people, bo- their bodies may be feeling safer and more acclimated. Right, right. You know, it's like for a lot of people, this is the unknown. There's nothing that scares a human more than the unknown. So if if they get a felt sense that their partner really has their back, then people can open up like a flower a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this this is just one thought. If we shift to the person that wants to go fast, but they have narcissistic symptoms, they are self-entitled and all of that. The thing is with that person, so I'm, I'm going to switch to a lot of times that person, I'll, I'll call them like an overtaker type, mm-hmm. whether it's in non-monogamy or wherever they land in life, they tend to overtake. If they're uh, the head of a business, yeah. they, you know, or uh, an ex-president of the United States. Yeah, the, the, bull, <laughs> the bulldozer. Yeah, the bulldozer type. They tend to, to date what I'll call an overgiver. I don't like to use codependent because it 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 doesn't recognize the fact that a lot of overgivers especially when they're women it's due to sociological things not necessarily something within themselves per se but they've been like say a woman who has internalized misogyny that's been taught that she needs to give and give and give that kind of thing 
you know, it may be because of reasons like that. What I've noticed with some of my clients that are overgivers that are dating narcissists, as soon as I start to talk to them, especially women, as soon as I start to talk to them about the sociological things that are puppeteering them, I've seen women take their agency in a couple of weeks and shift it and leave someone who is being manipulative and gaslighting and pushing them and all of that and and find better, kinder partners and then all of a sudden enjoy non-monogamy and enjoy sexual freedom. Yeah, I've seen that happen in a cu- couple of weeks. And sometimes, yeah. you know, and it's like once you make that change, I've, I've known women to feel like they've aged backwards 10 years in one year. Mm-hmm. You know, once you get with, you know, leave, you know, leave someone that is, extreme like that and uh, find someone who's kind and benevolent. So a lot of times people conflate, they think because they're like, to me, Rachel Krantz's book, um, Open, is a perfect example of this. It's like, sometimes if you're not with a kind partner, you can think that non-monogamy is not for you, but it's really that this partner is not for you. Yes. That's so true. And this is, I mean, you said you also have a chapter on self-compassion. So I imagine this is where maybe that can come in. Say say more about the self-compassion piece. Okay. Well, with self-compassion, you know, I think a lot of self-compassion, like if we think about the difference between having empathy for ourselves versus self-compassion, empathy might be just like allowing ourselves to sit with our feelings. But then at the end of the day, we're saying yes when it's not a true yes or, or something of that nature. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we, we're noticing our emotions, but then we're stopping short of actually taking care of ourselves, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, if, if we're going to have self-compassion, there's things that we need to work on. Mm-hmm. I, I've already talked about healing your attachment injuries, you know, and part of that is learning to track your body. And, you know, I talked a lot about that, I think, in the first episode, episode 137. Um Another one besides healing our attachment injuries. Well, first, let me just say, you know, when you heal your attachment injuries and now you're more grounded in your body and centered and and connected to your full compass, now you can advocate for yourself in an authentic way. So now you've got compassion in action again, right? Yeah. You know, when you're triggered left, right, and centered and dysregulated in your body, it's hard for you to even know which end is up. So how yeah. are you going to advocate for yourself very effectively? Yeah, and right? I've talked about this in, in past episodes on the nervous system, but if you're tuning in for the first time, basically in short, it's like if we're triggered in a certain kind of way, the part of our brain that's responsible for things like empathy, compassion, social engagement uh, slows down or shuts off. And so you have to be in a certain kind of space in order to access those things in your physical body. Right. Right. So yeah, healing your attachment injuries is, is one. Another one is building your positive affect tolerance. So, you know, building your positive affect tolerance doesn't just, you know, so let me just describe that. So a lot of times we, in, in culture, we hear about, um, we don't hear the term negative affect tolerance, but we hear it in practice. Like we we're impressed when the superhero, uh, can take a million bullets, you know, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing. 
Uh, but positive affect tolerance is, is literally your tolerance for the yumminess of life. And so sometimes we have strong positive affect tolerance in one area, like our career. We can take compliments that we're a badass in our career, but maybe we can't uh, take a, a compliment outside of that. You know, maybe if somebody compliments, um, you know, how kind we are or something that's not or related how good to our, our body or how good our body looks. Yeah. Or, or something of that nature. It can feel like an itchy sweater that we want to throw across the room right? Mm -hmm. So we can track our positive affect tolerance and notice where we're weak and then lean into that and try and build it just like a muscle in the gym, you know? And, and so why would this be important in non-monogamy? Well, you know, if you can't, if a compliment is an itchy sweater, then how are you going to track, how are you going to take one person loving you well, let alone more than one person loving you well? Or how are you going to tolerate walking into a party where, like I said, non-monogamous people tend to be very warm and they will compliment you on your body or your outfit or, you know, they tend to, you know, they, they're huggers a lot of times, that sort of thing. How are you going to really tolerate that environment? If you don't have strong enough positive affect tolerance, a lot yeah. of times, if you don't have the positive affect tolerance, you will unconsciously, this is not a conscious thing, like a evil villain, you will unconsciously sabotage things within your non-monogamous relationship. And you'll, again, you might think that you can't do non-monogamy when really you just need to strengthen up your positive affect tolerance muscles in a, in a few ways. So, Yeah, that's such an interesting way of looking at it of like that yeah, that people who are struggling in non-monogamy are just struggling to accept more expansive love. Yeah. Or, or sexualities, any kind of good feeling Mm -hmm. you may or might, may not have the tolerance for, you know, yeah. Different settings. If you are opening up or considering opening up, or even if you're monogamous and feeling great about that, it is important to know your STI status. I myself get tested every six months and sometimes more depending on what I'm getting up to. One of the easiest ways I have been able to do that is through EverlyWell. EverlyWell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash S&S. Everlywell is a digital healthcare designed for you company. They offer over 30 at-home lab tests for a variety of health areas, but obviously my favorite is the STI test. They test for seven types of STIs and you can do it all from your own home. For me, they shipped it to me with everything needed for a simple sample collection. I logged in online, answered a few short questions about myself and my health. Then I was directed to some easy to follow steps, including videos on how to do the test and swabs and then send it back. So join me in knowing your status and for listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering you a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash S and S. That's Everlywell, E-V-E-R-L-Y-W-E-L-L, everlywell.com slash S and S for 20% off your next at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash S and S. So I wonder with this, and I think this is always an ongoing question and something that I work on with clients, as I'm sure you do, is like, we're talking about dating your species, right? And I I think there are some people who can like almost be the same species, but they're never going to like be the total same species, right? Mm-hmm. At 100%. And so how do you know if the feelings of discomfort or like the different pacing, someone going fast, someone slow, how do you know when it's an indicator that you just don't want to be non-monogamous or don't want to be with that person versus when it's just a highlight of like a, a working edge that you need to work on. I think it's so hard to tell. 
I think it is hard to tell because I I think, you know, if we go back to body tracking, I mean, Mm -hmm. so many times I, I can speak personally where maybe somebody told me about a new lover or something like that. And I yeah. felt that knife drop drop in my gut. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, there's somebody, somebody else. Do they like them more than me? What do they think about them? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Or sometimes it's just like that primal physical response. I don't even know. Yeah. I, I, originally I might not even know what my brain is thinking about it. I just, there's that somatic visceral knife. response. Yeah. That visceral response. And, um, you know, and, and I think somebody who's monogamous that heard, heard that might be like, well, that's an indicator that you shouldn't be doing that, you know? Um, but I think, you know, just on the microscopic level, once we get in touch with that knife drop, then we need it not to be reactionary again, mind, body, spirit from a grounded centered place. We need to find a way to get grounded, maybe step, you know, if your partner is bringing something up and you feel that knife drop, you might need to say, I'm having an emotional response. I need to just have some time to get centered. It may just be 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll come back. I'm not, I'm not abandoning the conversation. I love you. I care about you. I just need a moment. Maybe you go to the bathroom, you do some deep breathing. And as you calm your body, probably some insights will come up. It may take longer than 10 minutes. You might notice with that knife drop, okay, I'm feeling scared. Um, and what are some of the thoughts that are coming up? Oh, well, they're, they're wanting to see this partner and I've heard some negative things about them or they're wanting to see this partner and w- our anniversary is coming up. Yeah. You know, or and, well, they, I think the big one I hear is like worried that they'll leave or that this person will replace them or the, for, for the folks who are m- more new to non-monogamy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that once you find out what it is from that deep place of the body, not the head, because the head can lie to you. If you just listen to your body or just listen to your head, either one can lie to you. But if you get really centered mind, body, and spirit from a grounded center place, mm-hmm. you're more likely to have your 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 compass tell you the truth. And so from mm-hmm. there, you can have a conversation with your partner in a way that is much more pinpointed to yeah. what's actually going on for you. And you can bring that up with them. And Again, now the, the the thing that now the ball is kind of going into their court, and I think mm-hmm. on this microcosmic example, again, it's whether your partner can have patience and compassion for you, can can work through it with you, yeah. and you might be able if 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 that can happen, then you can probably work through it, right? But if either they can't have the patience, or on their side they feel like you're just going too slow, and they love you, but this they you know, for some people, non-monogamy is not just something they'd like to do. It feels like an orientation for them, you know? Yeah. They, yeah. they might love their partner, but they may feel that non-monogamy is an orientation. And and that, they may need to be with someone else who feels like it's an orientation and not like a, a thing yeah. they're trying out. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody can't go slow enough, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not a compassionate person. I don't want people to think that I'm implying that. Um, you know, but I guess that's the, that's the hard part is how to know if you're just needing to slow down a little bit or when to be like, I cannot go this slow forever. Right. Right. I think this is where it's really good to have at least one non-monogamous friend that is just yours. A lot of couples, they will share non-monogamous friends. So say mm-hmm. Samantha is their shared friend. They get into yeah. a fight. They both go to Samantha. Samantha <laughs> slightly sides with someone. And guess mm-hmm. what? Now no one is friends with Samantha. 
you know, yeah. it just all blows up. So I always encourage people to have their shared friends as a, you know, as, again, you know, I always say couple because that's what comes into my practice, even if there's a triad or a poly family, et cetera, so on. Um, to have your shared friends, but then to each have your friends that are just for you that you can talk to when something goes wrong and, and, and get that second person that can give you some input and and just say, I don't know if I'm just being impatient or not being compassionate enough or, or if I need to call it, you know, I think sometimes we do need to have outside, outside resources that can help us work through it. Yeah. And your book is one of those. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, Honestly, I mean, I, there's amazing books out there, but a lot of them talk in generalities. I really tried throughout my book to put in the main things that I see over and over again, both in my practice and outside my practice, mm-hmm. and create vignettes that really take people through in a really concrete way to solve some of these main issues. Because a lot of a lot of uh, people that I talk to, they think they're unique in their issues, but it's really issues that I'm just hearing on a loop, both yeah. inside and out of my practice. Yeah. You know? And before earlier, we were talking a little bit about that kind of like narcissistic category where maybe they're not coming from a place of compassion and their like speed to move forward. I know you talk about this maybe a bit in your book, but how do things like personality and potential mood disorders fall into play here? Because we're talking about being able to kind of regulate the nervous system. And I definitely don't want to like stigmatize mental health stuff, obviously. And like, where do these things kind of fall into play um, when you're exploring non-monogamy? Well, first off, you know, a a lot of people that aren't in the mental health field, I, I hear some people talking about uh, things like narcissism or, or narcissistic abuse. Yeah. It, well, I hear them talking about different um, things like that as if someone that has it comes off an assembly line and they're all the same, like, you know, which is, is not true. Like if we talk about narcissism, it's on this huge continuum. And mm-hmm. I would even say the continuum also goes to the far left of people that aren't even diagnosable. They just have symptoms, right? Or just a lot of trauma. Yeah. 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 With, with narcissists, um, you know, with people with narcissism, especially if it's diagnosable, a lot of times it's egocentric, you know, versus egodystonic, meaning they don't think anything's wrong with them. So if you're dealing with someone with narcissism where it's egocentric, then, you know, and then they don't think anything's wrong with them. And they're not willing to work on things. Yeah. Right. And they're not willing and they completely think they're right. Um, you know, that's, that's a tough one. But if you're dealing with some, you know, that that's one where you, that, I, you know, I think the combination of someone of that type paired with both non-monogamy and an overgiver is a recipe for a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking yeah, about, be. yeah, but if you're talking about somebody with just narcissistic symptoms, mm-hmm. um, one thing that I've noticed in my practice is, you know, if I can talk to somebody just with symptoms they're not diagnosable and they're self-centered they're they're focused on their own needs not their partners if i can kind of in the beginning help them see how being kind to their partner actually ends up serving them so at first it's it's like the selfish thing but once they see how compassion and love actually benefits the whole relationship, sometimes I can build some true compassion in them. What starts off as acting as if shifts to being true compassion. They start to move away from being diagnosable. 
right. to the point where they don't have as much narcissistic symptoms or, you know, they fade, start to fade out. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one thing that I would say on the overgiver side, an overgiver has a tendency to be that person that's like, I will heal you with my love. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and a lot of times the person that's overgiver an overgiver, if they heard this, they, they might view their, their partner as probably the type that is not diagnosable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, again, for the overgiver, I would encourage them to track their body. If they are constantly feeling that knife drop in their body, if they're walking around in this relationship with starting with and starting to feel generalized anxiety or generalized anger, where they're like, "Why am I so angry all the time? I didn't yeah. used to be like this. Why am I so anxious all the time? I didn't used to be like this." Mm-hmm. Those are all telltale signs that that it may be that the re- relationship is wearing down your psyche you know, Mm -hmm. and that might be an indicator that you need to call it. But Mm -hmm. on the flip side, if, if you are finding ways to get your person with some narcissistic symptoms to come around and be present and listen to you, and you're seeing them start to have more compassion, then maybe this is somebody you can work with. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we can't go through like every personality or mood, uh, stuff that's going on for somebody, but like, what about some other ones, whether that be depression or, um, you know, bipolar or whatever else is coming up? Well, if we were to talk about say borderline personality disorder, I think a lot of, you know, therapists that lean towards monogamy and that monogamous framework, they would think that non-monogamy is crazy pants for someone with borderline symptoms. Mm -hmm. They would probably say, you know, someone with borderline symptoms needs to have a monogamous, secure relationship. What and, and sometimes that may be true, but I would argue that sometimes, again, for somebody with more light borderline symptoms, having a safety net of more than one lover actually can give them more of a, a you know, as I said, a safety net in life so that yeah. if one person fall, you know, falls away or they get into a fight, they have some other lovers to hold them up. Mm. You know, I have a yeah. tendency, you know, for you know, if you think about some so people, it's not may just not, one person that may be like the best or the worst, but you have like a whole community of support. Right. And for people that don't understand borderline, I mean, this is, if you Google it, you'll, you'll hear a different definition, but this is one way I nutshell it. A lot of times people with borderline personality disorder, they've had so many attachment injuries, you know, in their backstory mm-hmm. that what they want most and what they fear most is love. And so when they get towards the love and they it's feel that scary. yearness, and they're like, Eep! And they, they do like major things to, they may pull away hard. They may break that one relationship agreement where you're like, okay, you can have freedom, but just don't have sex with my sister. You know, they can like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they can, they can put a bomb under things in a way that's pretty extreme, especially the more borderline you're talking about. But at the end of the day, that's oftentimes what's behind it is that what they want most and what they fear most is love. The reason they want love so much is because they have not gotten it. They're like a little wilted flower that needs some sunlight and water and and good soil. And they just have never gotten it, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then, like you said, the the fear or the lack of knowing of what that even feels like, or knowing that it, if you get a taste of it and how good it feels that then it could be taken away. Yes. Um, 
it's terrifying. And there's a rejection of the the light and the soil that would make things feel more grounded. So they leave before they can be left. So that that's why you you have this push pull from mm-hmm. the borderline person. And and so you know uh, if you have a partner that has some borderline symptoms, um, I, I would say it's important one on your end don't love bomb them because that sometimes makes them swing harder. Like a mm, gentle. And can you define? I know people maybe listening have heard this term before, but how do you define love bombing? Okay, so you know, usually you you hear that in conjunction with narcissists, but I think uh, other other people besides narcissists sometimes love bomb ADHD. I would people. say I'm, I was going to say I'm an ADHD person, and I think there's love bombing because it's like a an overpromise, and then I get uh, overwhelmed with my yeah. own stuff. Yeah, and and I think. Honestly, you don't even have to have a, there's a lot of us that love bomb at the beginning, you know, we yeah. get excited about someone, we don't really yeah. know them. And we just like, just, just bomb them with love and compliments and great sex and focus and a million texts and a million And now we have to calls. get back to work and. <laughs> right. And then at a certain point, we kind of get to know them and it's not fresh anymore. And, and we yeah. shift our gaze to something else or we dial way back down. And, you know, so. Yeah. Cause the love, the love bomb is not sustainable. <laughs> Right, right, right. And and so the thing is, if you love bomb someone with borderline, again, it's like you're going to give them all this love. What they fear most, what they want most is love. And so at first, they're going to lean into that. They're actually going to be attracted to that person that love bombs, right? Because that's what they want. But then at a certain point, it's going to terrify them. And then if the love bombing is very intense, they're going to swing hard in the opposite direction. Whereas if your love is more gentle and and consistent, they're going to, sw- their, their swinging is going to be more gentle, mm-hmm. you know, if they stay in the relationship, they might go to someone else that's more dramatic, but in terms of your own self-care, you're less likely to get hurt if you just love them gently. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's one thing I would say about that. And for the person with, you know, borderline symptoms, and it, again, this is almost like an extreme form of not having positive affect tolerance, right? Yeah. Like you can heal yourself. There's a lot of different ways to heal yourself, whether it's doing EMDR with a therapist. If you can't afford things like that, then, you know, meditation, grounding, anything that helps you get centered in your body. And then also going back to positive affect tolerance, noticing what gets scary for you and trying to gently lean into those things mm-hmm. can slowly build up a muscle for the person yeah. with borderline to, to help them. Uh, start to recover. These are just a few ideas. There's way more out there. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap up, and I think this kind of like ties it together a lot, uh, you talk about something uh, called the EPIC communication model. Um, Mm -hmm. What is the EPIC communication model and where does this fit in? Okay. Well, it fits in everywhere and it's, and it is a, it is a model for compassion. Like everything about it is a model for compassion. So one thing that I noticed, there's a lot of great communication models out there, you know, Mm -hmm. nonviolent communication, Imago dialogue, but none of them say, oh, by the way, if you're not grounded and centered in your body, none of this will work. And so I, I created a model that interweaves grounding all the way through it. So it's basically a model that is a combination of Imago dialogue, um, you know, grounding skills, and at the end, a little bit of Buddhist compassion. So I'll just go through the letters really quickly. Yeah. Um, the E is the emotional 
So the empathizing piece, the P is the physical, the grounding piece, the I is the intellectual, the validating piece, and the C is the compassion and action. You know, what are you going to do to make this better piece? Mm -hmm. The P happens all through it. It happens whenever it's needed, but it's good to have it at the Always beginning. Always peeing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. The, the, Golden the, shower all over your communication <laughs> styles. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. So the, the P, again, that's the grounding. So you're grounding from the beginning before you ever get started, whenever you sense that yourself or your partner needs it throughout it. And then at the very end, as, as you know, just like with the BDSM community, after a scene, they they do um, you know uh, care at the very end. You know, mm-hmm. aftercare. This is so doing some aftercare at, at the very end of a hard conversation is important. So going through it a little bit um, with more depth. Um, so say Mary says, you know, you were really. I felt ignored at the play party. You were talking to this other gal the whole the whole night, and you know. Uh, Bob, I don't know why they have 1950s names. But anyway. <laughs> Mary, Bob, Samantha. So Mary, Mary is basically saying, uh, you know, I felt really ignored at the party. And maybe Bob, Bob says, you know, I can already see that you're tense. Is there anything I can do to ground you? And so they, you know, maybe she says, actually, while we're, while I'm talking to you, can we just go to the bed and can I just, can you just spoon me while I talk to you? You know, this is, again, assuming she's not so mad that she's to the place of don't touch me, right? You know, and and so now he's spooning her. And so she says, I just really felt ignored. So now we're moving into the E, the empathizing piece. So he's just reflecting back. You know, I'm hearing that you're feeling ignored. Anything else? Yeah, I felt really sad and lonely. So you're feeling sad and lonely. You're pulling out all the emotional piece until she feels seen, right? And now you can probably move to the eye at any point in the middle. If she seems like she's tense again, he might say to her, you know, I can feel you tensing up. Is there anything else that can help? You know? Yeah. If you pet my head. And so now he's like petting her head and, you know, and so now he's moving to the eye. Right. And he might say, I intellectually, I can validate the fact that um, it, it makes sense to me that you felt lonely at the party. Cause it's the first party that we've ever gone to. You had told me you were nervous before and, um, you know, so I know it was hard for you, mm-hmm. you know, is there anything else? Uh, yeah, I had a hard day at work, so I was, I wasn't at my best self. Okay. I can understand all of those things, you know, and when she feels that she's really empathized with and validated, now you can move to the, the C. Is there anything else that would help? And, you know, is there anything that I can do to be more compassionate in the future? You know, and and she might say, if you could just check in on me like once an hour, or if you could spend a little bit more time just with me at the beginning of the party before we kind of go off in different directions, then I would feel more more seen. And again, at the very end, they might he they might check in with each other in terms of grounding and maybe give each other a hug or whatever feels feels right. Now, I, I focused on Mary, but obviously there's a point of um, the grounding could happen either way. It actually gets more complicated, but I'm simplifying it for the purpose yeah. of running through it. And certainly he gets a time where the emotional talking stick is in his hand and now it's his turn, you know? And I imagine too, for, for Bob in this situation, like if it's <laughs> being approached this way, there might be less uh, 
inclination that he would feel controlled maybe mm-hmm. by her ask. But I do wonder what would happen if the ask was, and this is subjective, right? Like what is control what is, versus what is compassion? But like, if the ask felt more like controlling, like don't ever do this thing again, because I don't want to feel this way. Or like next time you have to, you know, do this in this situation. Well, yeah. And, and it's, a, I'm glad you're bringing this up because again, within non-monogamy, this is kind of the crux mm-hmm. of the big problem of, of between balancing compassion and agency, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really hard to balance those two oh, things. Yeah. What's the right balance? <laughs> I, I think to a degree, it's an individual decision of what feels totally. right for you. But, you yeah. know, it, it's like there's people that lean too hard on compassion for their partner and mm-hmm. lose themselves. And there's and people that's the, that, that's the over giver. Yeah. It can be, it, yeah. if it gets big, it can be that overgiver. And then there's, there's people who are not necessarily narcissists, but they just really are focused on individualism and freedom. And that's most non-monogamous people, you know, are mm-hmm. very focused on freedom and individualism. And so they can get very scared easily if the, anything smells like, like control. Yeah. Well, that they're free to, at the at, underneath that is like, I'm, I'm fearful of losing myself. I'm fearful of mm-hmm. losing my freedom in the case of someone who feels controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases you may be being controlled um, and it may yeah. not be malicious. Like sometimes, sometimes no, it might be like, I'm trying to protect myself, you know? Yeah. Uh, especially a lot of people that struggle with anxiety, they're just mm-hmm. trying to manage their anxiety, but a lot yeah. of times they come off as super controlling in relationships yeah. and they don't even realize it, yeah. you know? Um, for somebody who's feeling controlled, uh, one thing that you can do is is notice the feeling and think about what is my partner's responsibility in this and what is mine. Mm-hmm. If you get in touch with a moment where you feel controlled, get in touch with that emotionally and your notice what you're feeling in your body notice what you're feeling emotionally what you were looking at in the worst moment um and connect all that and then bridge back to the first or worst memory that comes up for you you might be able to find moments in your backstory where you felt controlled and it may be that if you have a series of moments that happened either in your personal story or maybe you feel controlled from a sociological level like if you experience a lot of misogyny or racism you know as, as two examples you may have a lifetime of feeling controlled both within your life and also on the societal level. Um, and you, I think that's important to notice because mm-hmm. it may be that you have your own healing journey yeah. because if, if you are so triggered by that due to a lot of injuries related to control, then every match is going to feel like a forest fire, mm-hmm. you know? And so you might need to do some healing work yeah. now. Now, if that's not the case for you and you've done your healing work um, and you're, you're, this is just too much of a controlling relationship, then again, it's looking at your partner and trying to figure out, can they come along, you know? Yeah. Or is it too much of a divide, you know? Yeah. Um, and oh, and you- the, like I said, these are such good, I think for even people who aren't in non-monogamy, like all the things you're describing are crucial. Because that it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with you fucking this other person in this way. It could be like when you go out with your friends and don't check in with me. This is how I feel. Like this is this is good across the board. 
Yeah. When I have two people in my office, almost always, regardless of the relationship model, there's one person that's focused on individualism and personal freedom. And there's mm-hmm. one person that is more focused on the couplehood and the relationship. And <laughs> why, do both... we cho- why do we choose these opposites, right? <laughs> well, I think there's some health in that. Uh, Begin in the end, you know, yeah. like if it's not too extreme, because basically yeah. what happens is like in, in my mind, a healthy relationship you know, it's kind of like three, three circles. There's one circle is, is the couple and the health of the couple. One circle yeah. is you and the other cir- circle is the other person, right? And all the circles need to be healthy. The person yeah. focused more on the couplehood is working on that health. The person focused on the individualism is working on the other two. If the, if the person focused on the couplehood win- wins, all the time, the relationship yeah. will probably become enmeshed. If the person that's focused just on individualism wins all the time, any connection, then there's no intimacy. Yeah. So if they both win a little bit of the time or find them in, bet- in between, then all the circles are, are, are healthy. You know, there's mm-hmm. that connection between the two of them, but yeah. then they also have their own separate lives yeah. that are fulfilling. Do you want to allow for more pleasure in your sex life? Join me and Reba the Diva, a.k.a. Reba Corinne Thomas of Sexpert Consultants on July 9th at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. This two-hour collaborative workshop will cover how your nervous system affects your pleasure potential, as well as how to find the right balance of excitement and relaxation. This class will also help you to learn more about your erotic style, as well as lead you through some guided practices to help you come back to your body before, during, and after intimate moments. Check out more info and buy your tickets at sexpertconsultants.com consultants.com slash tickets again s-e-x-p-e-r-t consultants.com slash tickets and join me on july 9th oh kate so amazing as always (laughs) (laughs) i feel like we could continue on on this forever so part three in the future um (laughs) how can people buy the book uh get in touch hire you all the things Alrighty. Well, the book is in three forms, paper book, paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. You can find it wherever books are sold. If um, you want the paperback book, please support our local bookstores, um, you know, like Skylight Books, um, you know, uh, whatever your local bookstore is in your area. Um, my website is katelarie.com. That's Kate and then L-O-R-E-E.com. Uh, and that's that's how you connect to me if you are looking for psychotherapy or support. Uh, on both Instagram and TikTok, it's open deeply with Kate Lurie. And basically on social media, if you just put in Kate Lurie, I'll pop up because it's an, an unusual enough name that it'll come up. <laughs> Thank you, Kay. I love diving into this with you. And again, listeners, if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Uh, I can't say I really do that much on TikTok, but I guess you could find me there at Sluts and Scholars. Uh, and don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. Uh, and yeah, check out those advertiser discounts. Talk to you next time.